So what I like to do, it's always kind of tempting <clears throat> when you read Exodus, you read the wanderings of the, of the Israelites, is to look at them <clears throat> and see how many mistakes they made. <laughs> and then you preach from, okay, here's what they did. We don't want to do that. So here's what you do instead. I, I tend not to like to do that. So what I thought I'd do first is um, kind of start with the backstory, right? There's a history that got started 4,000 years ago, culminated 2,000 years ago, and here we are today. So we're going to take a little bit of the, of the history, maybe only like 10 minutes of history, and then we'll get to the text tonight. So here's the backstory. So we're going to start with Abram. And you know it's not Abraham, it's Abram at this point. So Abram is born to Terah in Ur of the Chaldees. That's in present-day southeastern Iraq. Uh, Abram has two brothers, Haran and Nahor, and a half-sister, Sarai, whom he later marries. That's in Genesis 20. Abram's family worships, foreign, worships pagan deities. This is in Joshua 24, if you're curious if that's actually true. And it's, it, it is true. If you go back, so what does this mean? There's two terms, polytheism and monotheism. Polytheism is the recognition and worship of multiple gods, right? So that means there's many. So present-day examples of that would be Hinduism, Taoism, that kind of thing, right? There's, there's more than just one. There may be one big one, but there's many others. He's not the only one. Monotheism is the worship of one deity, one god. Now, there's only three religions in the entire world ever that are monotheistic. Who are they? Islam, Judaism, Christianity. There's only three, right? Everyone else, and there's been thousands of religions, have been polytheistic. And that's what we got our start in. We were polytheists, right? And that's what Abram was and his family. Virtually every human alive at that time, <clears throat> perhaps with the exception of Abram, was polytheistic. So God starts with that. God starts with one pagan-worshipping person in southern Iraq. Then what happens? When he's 70, the family moves from Ur to Haran. Haran is in present-day southeastern Turkey. And it's there that he's called to go to Canaan. Now, Canaan is present-day Israel, parts of Syria, Lebanon, Jordan. Okay? So he's called to go south to Canaan. And God promises there to make him into a great nation, to bless those that bless him, to curse those that curse him, and that through him all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Three important promises that God makes, that, get, that gain their fulfillment as we go through, as we'll see tonight. Abram has later promised a son and descendants who are given that, that, uh, that land of Canaan. It is revealed to him at that point that his descendants would be slaves in a land that is not theirs for 400 years and that they would be brought out. So God is unilaterally making these promises to this pagan guy. He didn't have to. He could have just said, go, but what he did is he told him what's going to happen, these things he's going to do through him and through his descendants. He makes these, these unbelievable promises. So God renames Abram, Abraham, and his wife Sarah, Sarai rather, Sarah. 
Now, this, it's interesting that God visits Abram five times. And on the fifth time is when he renames him. He renames him by putting this H in the middle of his name. And the H is the fifth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and it means grace. Right? Heh. So that's interesting. So Abraham, at this point, Abraham to Israel, and obviously I'm going past a lot, but Abraham to Israel. Abraham fathers Ishmael, then Isaac. Ishmael's the older. Isaac's the younger. Who gets the blessings in a Jewish family? Oldest. Instead, God tells Abraham that it is through Isaac the younger that his descendants will be reckoned. Isaac fathers Esau, then Jacob. Now, we had a kind of an argument about this one Tuesday night about who was older of the two twins, but <laughs> it was actually Esau. Esau's older. Um, and again, what you see is that the younger gains the blessing. God declares his love for Jacob in opposition towards Esau. And I put an asterisk there because that becomes really important later on. At this point, it seems kind of unfair. Why is he saying he, he hates their kids? How can he hate a person before they're even born? It, becomes, it, it, it makes sense later on. Jacob has 12 children, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, and Benjamin. He orchestrates events such that the entire family ends up in Egypt. After 400 years, their numbers have swelled from 70 to over a million. They are severely oppressed and in slavery. So this is about 500, 500 years have passed at this point. Moses is born in Egypt to Israelites at a time when Pharaoh is very concerned about this growing population of slaves. He's set adrift, everyone knows the story, he's set adrift to avoid being executed. He's raised in Pharaoh's court at the age of 40, Moses flees Egypt, settles in Midian. Midian is in uh, Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia. He settles there. He spends 40 years as a herdsman. So at 80, Moses is commissioned by God to liberate Israel from their bondage in Egypt. After some negotiation, he agrees to return to Egypt with Aaron. Now, the first most important thing to observe here how old is Abraham? This is the mid-70s when he was commissioned. How old is Moses? 80. Clearly God trusts old people. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> that joke came to me on, on the drive up. I thought, oh, that's... <laughs> the Exodus. Okay. So God convinces a reluctant pharaoh... To release the Israelites, fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham that they would be released. God himself, my, my third asterisk here, himself leads the nation out of Israel, out of slavery, in Egypt. Destination Canaan, the land he promised to God, the, the land God promised to Abraham's descendants. So this starts a series of events where the nation is placed in and delivered from difficult situations. And they're placed in these situations. That's the one thing I, I really want us to see tonight. They're not there because they made bad decisions. 
They're there because God placed them there. So, so Exodus 17, if we could turn there. So Exodus 17 is kind of split into two parts. I'm going to read the first part completely. <clears throat> then we'll go back and we'll take a look at some of these questions. Then I'll read the second part and we'll do the same thing. All right, 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled. And because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord with us or not? So let's go back. Verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. Now there's some more details of this later, about how this worked. But in the reality was there was a pillar of fire at night, and a cloud during the day. When the cloud moved, they moved. When it stopped, they camped. So they were literally being led, literally being led by this cloud of fire. That's the picture you want to observe. They weren't wandering on their own. They were going at the pace and direction of the Lord. So they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, "'Give us water to drink.'" So I think there's a couple of things to observe here right off the bat. God knew that they wouldn't have water. He knew that. He wasn't surprised. What did Mike cover last week? Manna from heaven. Now, could he... What happened with the manna from heaven? They got enough six days a week, and there was a double portion on the, on the sixth day. So on the seventh day, they didn't have to collect any, right? The point being that every day they got something to eat. But suddenly they're out of water. Now, could God have made it rain every single day with showers on Saturday so that there's plenty for Sunday? Obviously, yes, but he didn't. So what you see, and I'm going to keep hammering this, you're seeing that God is orchestrating this for a reason knowing what they would do to develop a relationship with them. They have to, he's taking a group of polytheistic people and molding them into a, a, a nation through which comes the Messiah. Th that's key. And that's what these hundreds of years, all of these experiences, that's what they all add up to. So <clears throat> would it have been hard for God to provide regular caches of food and water? No. Trivial, right? 
So all of these events serve to deepen our understanding. So God deliberately places Israelites in this situation, but does that excuse the behavior? No. Right. So what did they do? They grumbled, and we'll get to that next. But now, in one sense, the answer is no, right? The one, in one sense, the answer is no. In another sense, you got to remember, what kind of people are we talking about here? They're tough people. They've just come out of slavery. Are they used to going without water? Probably. How long can you last in the desert without water? Seven? Three? Three or four, that's it. Now, so what's happened is they got, they were walking along. They were probably out of water on Tuesday. Wednesday, okay, it's getting serious. Death is day after tomorrow. That's how serious the situation is. That's how close you are, right? If you don't get water, you're going to die pretty quickly. On the other hand, God promised his, the, the, his descendants, that these people would possess the land of Canaan, right? So it's kind of similar to the way um, Isaac, Abraham and Isaac, right, the sacrifice, right? A God tells Abraham that through Isaac, right, your, the, the descendants would come through Isaac. And then one chapter later, he tells him to sacrifice Isaac. Right? His only son. He's very specific. Now, you think Abraham has two sons, but he doesn't. Not in God's economy. He only has one. So he tells him to kill his only son. But in Hebrews, we just talked about this. In Hebrews, they, it, it talks about Abraham's in the hall of faith for a reason. And that reason is he reckoned that God would raise him from the dead. So he was prepared to kill him, knowing... His faith, he knew God made a promise. He knew it. So he thought, all right, well, I'm just going to kill him, and then God will raise him back to death because he promised. He didn't test him. He didn't say, well, I can't do that. He didn't argue. He just did it. So in one sense, yes, it was, it was unreasonable to do that. In another sense, they're very close to death. Right? It's, it's not like they don't, they, you know, they have bad cell phone coverage there, right? They're, they're, <laughs> they're going to be in serious trouble in days. So you, you kind of get the both sides. So let's go to the second half of verse 2. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So first question, what does it mean to test the Lord? To test God is to insist that he prove that he is trustworthy. Let's flip over to Matthew uh, 4, verse 1. Matthew 4. I'll read it out loud. <clears throat> and again, this is in the context of what does it mean to test? Matthew 4, starting in verse 1. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, unless you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, yes, I agree, that's written, but it is also written, you shall not tempt, you shall not test 
You should not put the Lord your God to the test. To, to test would mean to insist that God prove himself trustworthy. If Jesus had thrown him off, thrown himself off the top, what would have happened? He would have been caught. But to demand that God do that, that's putting him to the test. That's exactly what's happening with the Israelites here. God made them a promise that they would possess the land of Canaan. And he made them a promise that he would possess the land. Now, is God going to fulfill that promise? Yes. They don't know how, but they're demanding that he prove himself trustworthy. Remember, they're polytheistic. In several chapters, they're going to arrive at Mount Sinai. Moses is going to go up. And they, yes, they've seen amazing things, but Moses is going to go up and not come down for four weeks. And they're going to say, well, he's gone. Okay, let's, let's, we'll we'll go get another one. Right? That didn't work. So we'll go get another one. Right? So they're convinced at this point that Jehovah is real, but they're not convinced of any of the others or of his character. They don't know him yet. That's what this situation is all about. God introducing himself and showing them what he is like. That's why he orchestrated this, this event. So it's okay to question how God will fulfill a promise, but it's not okay to question whether he will. It's not okay to demand that he prove himself trustworthy. This is, um, as an aside, this is why name it and claim it is so, um, so dangerous. Um, because the name it and claim it movement is, is, is kind of a movement of, um, where they, they claim that you can, there's kind of a formula for answered prayer. And then the formula for answered prayer is you find a promise in the Bible and you say, okay, this promise applies to me. Therefore, God has to, has to do it. Now, what's the problem there? It's a test. Again, once again, it's a test. It's insisting that he do something. Verse 3, but the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go, behold, I will stand there before you on the rock at Horeb. Now, <clears throat> I find it interesting the different reaction that the people had and Moses had. The people went to Moses and said, give us water. Moses went to God and said, what do you want me to do? Right? There's a huge difference there. They're both concerned. They both don't know what to do. They both recognize it's a really difficult situation. But the people are demanding something. They're demanding that God do something. Moses goes to God and says, look, what do you want me to do? If, if you don't, you know, he doesn't even say, if you don't do something, I'm in trouble. He just says, look, this is going to happen. What do you want me to do? And, it, and that's a really important difference. Remember that God is introducing himself to them in the same way, you know, we do the same thing as humans. We start off pagans, right? And God introduced himself to us and he brings us along the same exact way. The patterns that you see in the Old Testament are the patterns that you see in our lives as well. 
So it's perfectly fine to say, what do you want me to do? Right? That's fine. He's not looking for, you know, manufactured cheerfulness all the time. Right? But it's not okay to say, you have to do this a certain way. You made a promise, now fulfill it. Right? Which, by the way, personally is something I really struggle with. Because I'm, I'm pretty much constantly doing that. I'm saying, you know, where are you? You promised. What the heck? Am I, why am I still doing this? Okay. So we already discussed the quarreling part. But why does God stand in front of Moses? It specifically says, why does he stand in front of Moses? Did he have to? Not really. So why did he? It's the same idea behind him leading the Israelites out of Egypt. He was actually right in front of them, right there, physically. It's called a theophany. I don't know if you heard that term, but it's a, it's a visible, physical, uh, uh, it's not a vision, right? It's, it's a physical manifestation of God right in front of you. The burning bush is one, uh, the pillar of fire, the, the smoke. These are all theophanies. And that's what standing in front of the rock was. The same exact thing. God actually and directly leads Israel and his actual presence would guide Moses to the exact place where the rock should be struck. Verse 6. And you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did in the sight of the elders of Israel. So what does the rock represent? You're not allowed to answer. What does the rock represent? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. The rock, and again, the thing that's always amazing to me is these are actual events. But God so often takes actual events and infuses them with symbolic spiritual truths, right? So the rock represents something. The Amalekites that we'll get to later, they represent something. The whole thing, it's always the, the, the water that comes out of the rock represents something. So what is the rock? First Corinthians 10, we don't have to guess. Paul tells us exactly what it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be aware, brother, unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So that rock actually is a, is a picture of Christ. Again, how many different ways... Could God have given them water? A million. Literally a million different ways God could have provided water for them. Why strike a rock? What's the point of that? Well, there's a reason. There's three things to note. One, the rock is a picture, a symbol of Christ. So in one sense, um, being compared to a rock, um, it's not completely flattering. Right? You, you heard the expression, dumb as a rock. Right? So that's not super flattering. 
But in another sense, a rock is firm. Um, uh, the Lord is my rock, right? Rock of ages. Uh, it, it, it's an unmoving, firm foundation object. Um, the, rock, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. That's the whole concept of being the rock. It's the stumbling stone. You, you'll see these symbols used all the way through, end to end throughout the Bible. So we're meant to understand that the rock represents Christ. Now the rock is struck. Why? Why strike the rock? Why have Moses strike the rock? What's the point? He could have hit it with the thunder. It could have been any, many different ways. It could have been an earthquake, lightning, anything. There's two things in view here. One is the symbolism of the, of the striking, right? And we'll get to that later. The second is when, when the rock splits, water flows from the rock, which is also kind of unusual, right? You don't split rocks and get water. You drill for water, but you don't split rocks and get water. But again, it's the picture that's in view here. So what's the symbolism of water? Water has, a, has the power to purify. There's ritual cleansing rites um, throughout the Old Testament, uh, uh, washing of hands and those kinds of things. They don't really clean your hands. The whole idea is, is it's a symbol, right? They're not using soap and water. They're just pouring water over it to, as, a, as a symbol of, of, of purity. Water can destroy evil. The flood is a good example of that. In the parting of the Red Sea, water can destroy evil. Water is life. When um, Jesus stands up in John 7 and says, uh, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's an odd thing for someone to say. Right? If you're, if you're thirsty, I have some bottled water I can give you. That's not what he meant. Right? Not at all. So there's this picture that he is the water of life. Right? And again, end to end. So he starts off with... And you have to remember, at this point in history, 1500 B.C., all of Jesus and the rock and the water of life and being struck in the side, all of that was yet to come. So they have this image of this thing. That's all they know at this point is what's right in front of them. The water struck, split, and water comes out. Jesus asks the woman from Samaria for a drink then tells her that if she really knew who he was she would have asked him for living water. So again, you see the picture of the rock being Christ and water flowing from the rock. So what does the rock represent? Again, there's a million different ways God could have provided water. He chose to orchestrate this to provide a picture of the atoning work of Christ. Okay, so if you could, um, you don't have, so... If you can put your thumb in Exodus 17 and flip over to Numbers 20, the, there's two, and remembering again, Numbers 20, there's two events where God, uh, Moses is told to strike rocks. One is at the start, at Rephidim. <clears throat> One is at the end, uh, at Kadesh Barnea. Actually, I like. He strikes a rock twice. He was, he was told to strike the rock the first time. 
The second time he was told to speak to the rock. So why does God command Moses to strike the rock, but speak in Exodus 17 here, or fit him, but speak to the rock in Numbers 20 at Kadesh Barnea? And the idea there is that Christ need only be struck once. After that, the water is just for the asking. So he's struck once, crucified once, and then after that, he, he need not be struck again. You can just, salvation is for the asking. Now, Moses messes up the second one, and it costs him big time. Uh, however, uh, that's the picture. That's the symbolism. And in fact, when Moses blows it, at, um, he gets frustrated at Kadesh Barnea and, and hits it again. That's really the only time we see God getting angry. God was angry with Moses. Why? He wasn't angry with the people, even though they tested him. He wasn't, there's really not, not much of an indication that he's terribly angry with people. But he was very angry with Moses. And that's, it tells you how important it is to God that we understand the terms and conditions, right? It's very important to him that we understand that Christ was struck once, that life comes from him, and it's only once. He need not be struck again and again and again. So here's the Battle of Rephidim. It's Israel's first major battle as a nation. Uh, the Israeli forces are led by Joshua, who's first introduced here. <clears throat> it's Israel's first but not last encounter with the nation of Amalek, the Amalekites, uh, the founder of which was uh, Esau's grandson, which is kind of interesting. So if you look at um, Jacob and Esau, again, uh, the, two, the tw twin brothers, uh, Jacob fathers the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, Esau, from him are the Edomites. Edom means red. Uh, that's the, the Edomites. Esau's grandson was Amalek, who, were, who was the founder of the Amalekites. So I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm running a little late. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll go back, and we'll look at kind of piece by piece. <clears throat> So the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and her held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with a sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, Because the... And he said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, 
the Lord will be at war against the Malachites from generation to generation. So, do you remember when God said, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated, and Malachi? So now it starts to make sense. And you get more information out of this battle from Deuteronomy, but they're exhausted. They're tired. Um, they've just come through uh, a, a, an attempted attack by Pharaoh's army. Um, they've escaped that. They're exhausted. And they're getting attacked from the rear. Um, Deuteronomy gives you that kind of that detail of them picking off stragglers in the rear. They're hitting them from, from, the, from behind. Um, it starts to make sense now. You know, I've often thought if, uh, if Adolf Hitler uh, died as an infant, his parents would be upset and sad, right? Anybody that knew the Hitler family would be upset and sad. But would it have been a bad thing? Depends on the scope, right? It really does. That's why when God looks at Esau and says, well, I'm seeing, my vision is all of human history. And I can see what's coming. That's why I'm opposed to you. So <clears throat> some other episodes with the Amalekites, they were among the raiders defeated by Gideon. God commands Saul to destroy them. Probably an episode everybody remembers. He fails to do so. Samuel instructs him to, to, to kill everything. He doesn't. As a result, big mistake, he loses his kingship. Another interesting one, I hadn't realized this until I started researching for tonight. In the book of Esther, Haman, there's been a couple times when the Amalekites tried to destroy Israel. And and in the book of Esther, there's one where Haman tries to convince King Xerxes to kill all the Israelites. He, Haman, was an Amalekite. Yeah. Uh, the Amalekites are ultimately defeated by Hezekiah. Uh, in addition to, to simply being blood descendants of the grandson of Esau, Amalek is always a type or symbol of the flesh. And there's a lot of interesting uh, parallels that we start to pull up, right? The, the flesh attacks you where? Where you're weak, right? It doesn't hit you where you're strong. It's always going to hit you where you're weak, which is exactly what they did. If there, God is completely opposed to it. It must be completely destroyed. You can't coexist with the flesh, <clears throat> verse 9 so Moses said to Joshua choose for us men and go and fight with Amalek tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of the God in my hand so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought Moses held it so you get the picture they're winning they're losing they're winning they're losing now in one sense it's kind of like it's kind of crazy right why, why does that accomplish? What does that do? What does that accomplish anything? I really admire um, uh, the, the helpers, right? Uh, 
they do, they do the obvious thing, which is what? Well, prop his hands up. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like a no-brainer. But then in one sense, you're like, well, why, why does propping their hands up make a difference? You're propping his hands up. This seems to, but it makes sense. And here's why. Holding hands up is a Jewish posture of prayer. <clears throat> and it's something we've actually retained into Christianity. You'll see in 1 Timothy, he talks about that. So for the people who have been in the military, what happens when a general walks in a room? You do two things. You salute and you stand up. Why do you salute? Who invented that? Why don't you scratch your back or something? Why? There's, there's, it's a symbol, right? It's just a symbol. There's some things that are baked into us. This gesture, this, this acknowledgement of authority, this attitude of supplication, that was important because Joshua, you got to remember, they're fighting, but it's very important that God teaches them two things. They need to rely upon him. Now, could God have taken care of Amalek by himself? Of course. They could have attacked, and God could have said, look, all right, watch this. I'll take care of these guys, right? But he didn't. He made them fight. At the same time, they had to have that visible representation of God's participation in this battle, right? So that while it's going on, they know that God is in it. That, that was kind of, that, that was the view there, there's two pictures of participation. <clears throat> One is between Moses and Aaron and her lifting up, literally lifting up their pastor. And we talk about that a lot, you know, lifting up Jeremy in prayer, that kind of thing. And that's the same, that's th that same picture of holding him up. God tells Moses to hold his hands up to show them that the victory is the Lord's, not theirs. But they have to do their part. So there's an idea of synergism, right? Uh, there, there, there's two words that theologians throw around. One is monergism, the other is synergism. Um, monergism just means unilateral, right? So if God unilaterally does something, they say that's monergistic. If it's uh, like we believe salvation is in two parts. One, God extends the offer and we acquire it or adopt it by faith. So there's two uh, uh, actors in view here, God and man. A Calvinist doesn't view it that way. They view it as entirely monogistic. That's not what we believe. So synergistic, would, and, and this is like example number 486 of why I'm not a Calvinist, because <laughs> you see this throughout the Bible of this synergy. It's always synergistic, always. <laughs> okay, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it to the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Why does God promise to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven? So we talked about it. The flesh can't be bargained with. Amen. You can't coexist with it. 
It doesn't work that way. It can only be destroyed. They can't be renovated. There's nothing you can do with it. It just needs to be crucified. That's why he talks about it in Galatians of being crucified. He also <clears throat> makes this promise to fulfill his declaration of love for Jacob in opposition towards Esau. I got to get going a little quicker here. <laughs> Takeaways. So what can we learn from this episode in human history? So for me, it's the way that God orchestrates actual events as like a, almost like a play to, to illustrate a point. It's not just for them. This event, this, the, these two events, Water from the Rock and the Battle of Raphidim, illustrate Christian principles that we rely upon today, right? That's the whole point. There's many different ways he could have gotten water from the rock. He did it to prove a point, to provide a picture of Christ. So, you know, we talked about this in, a, in the apologetics class. <clears throat> there's, a, there's a problem called uh, the problem of evil, and the, the question in view there is, how do you reconcile the existence of so much evil with the existence of an omnipotent, all good, all powerful God? How, how do you, they don't seem to, to fit together. How do you do that? Now, if you'd ask the Israelites that same exact question, that was their question. We're thirsty. We're dying of thirst here. This is evil. How, this doesn't make sense. How You have to prove that you're good here. What they didn't see and what we don't see either every day is the ultimate good that these bad events have. So was that an unpleasant event for them? Did any one of them enjoy any of that? Has anyone here gone 36 hours without water? I doubt it. Maybe someone in the military in really difficult situations, but I haven't. I mean, I'm sure I'd be shocked if every single person in here didn't have water within three feet of their hand, right? That's just not the way we operate. Try it. It's really difficult. I haven't done it, but try it. It's really difficult. They didn't like it. And for them, for a lot of them, I'm sure they were thinking, this kind of proves that he doesn't exist. But instead... The thing to learn in those situations is have faith in the promise. Regardless of the situation you're in, you have to have faith that somehow he's going to do it. It's okay like Moses to say, what do you want me to do? That's okay. So, does God tend to provide long-term guidance or is, it minute, or is it minute by minute? He tends to do that. He'll, he'll make promises and you're not really sure how they're going to be fulfilled. What he doesn't tend to do is provide a detailed, here's how the next month is going to go for you. He just doesn't. And there's a reason, and it's to, to develop faith in us so that we will trust him even though it seems like he's not there. <laughs> All right. So what traits is God looking for, for us, looking for in us? He's looking for trust in spite of our circumstances. 
There's one person here that has a trust in spite of his circumstances to a degree I've never come across, and that's Lamar. I have, he's such a blessing to me. I've never come across anybody that had this, that much trust in, in view of all of the things he's had to go through. Um, it, it's just amazing. And that's what he's looking for. That's what he's looking for, brother. So what difficult situation has God placed us in? It always looks different. I don't know, the, the danger is we tend to think difficult situations are the uncomfortable ones. But that's not always true. The fun ones and the pleasant ones, they can be the difficult ones. So you got to be very, very, very careful of that. What is standing between us and trusting the Lord in that situation? I personally, I, always, I have one metric. Do I like it or not? That's it. That's my metric. And that's what I tend to go on. But I'm learning. I'm hanging around Lamar, and I'm learning. Amen. So another important lesson here is, you know, what battles are we fighting on our own? We do fight battles. That's, we do. But we're not to fight them on our own. And that's the challenge, right? So I'll leave you with this. I think there's two... There's two uh, verses that I thought kind of really illustrated this, this idea of what trusting the Lord looks like and um, what our part is and what God's part is. <clears throat> and it says, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. <clears throat> now, there's two parts. The horse is prepared, but victory belongs to the Lord. My favorite one, I, I'm not a... Uh, a tattoo person, but if I was going to put a tattoo on my body, it would be Nehemiah 4, 8 through 9. This is my, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem, stir up trouble against it, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard. So in one sense, you're like, well, why do you have to post a guard? You have to do both. You have to, we have to do our part. That's the way we're built. That's why he orchestrated this event, this battle at Rephidim. That's why he, instead of hitting them with meteorites and wiping them out on his own, commanded Joshua to go down. It's that synergistic thing that's in view, always in view. Right. I think that's all I had. So, all right. so let's, we'll, we'll pray. Quick prayer. Um, Father, I thank you for this time. I hope, uh, uh, I hope that it provides information that we can take away and grow with. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks so much for listening to this message from Great Bay Calvary Church in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our services or need prayer for something going on in your life, come connect with us at greatbaycalvary.com.